0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: I'm Hilary Harper. Time to get out your downball or your hacky sack today. We're looking at high school playgrounds. Sadly, a lot of them are basically an oval and a basketball ring, if you're lucky, and a lot of hard surfaces. And that will suit some kids, but others might feel there's no place for them in that kind of space. On Life Matters today, coming to you from the lands of the Kulin Nation, can playgrounds make high schools more inclusive? Let's find out. If you've got everyone from Year 7s to Year 12s using a playground, all genders, different needs and interests, can you design it to cater to everyone? I'd love to hear what might be included in your ideal high school playground, particular facilities, climate-related features, some kind of innovative seating. Gwyneth Lee has been delving into the world of playgrounds for some time now. She's a PhD candidate in public health at Canberra University. Gwyneth, great to have you on the program.
2: Great to be here.
1: Now, you're a landscape architect as well. What got you interested in school playgrounds?
2: Well, I've always had a strong interest in the impact that we have on the way that we design open space. I mean, a lot of research shows that not all open space is created equal. Some deliver well-being benefits in a better way to users than others. And we know that growing research shows more time spent outside is actually really good for us. It can improve our mood. It can change um, our habits by being more reflective. It helps us engage with people and be physically active. So schoolyards really caught my attention because it is this opportunity where students are provided every day with a daily dose of time outside, especially at a time when they really need it as a source to escape from, say, academic and social stresses. But it wasn't always clear to me whether the designs of these spaces were really enabling students to reap these well-being benefits of time outside.
1: Well, yes, we kind of inherited certain design features of playgrounds from very long ago schools, didn't we? How well are they contributing to to health and well-being for kids now?
2: That's a really good question, Hillary. I mean, the design brief for schoolyards really haven't changed much in in the decades that have passed. It's probably a space we can relate to from our parents and, and our own experiences now and to what our kids are experiencing. But I think given that we live in an age of COVID and climate change, I think these spaces can really work harder. And I think um, from the research I've been finding is that I think they really need to because students right now, they, they are experiencing increasing rates of anxiety and stress and mental health issues and I think we can use the outdoor spaces as a real preventative tool to help them cope during the school day.
1: Well we learned a bit from the lockdowns didn't we here in overseas about how useful playgrounds can be. Can you just summarise for us some of the the takeaways researchers learned during that time?
2: yeah sure well I think we found that we need access to open space I think a lot of us when we found we were constrained to our houses we that we did provide us with a sense of of relief when we got outside we could engage with others and we can get a bit of fresh air and change the conversation and we're finding the same kind of results in some of the case studies I've been looking at I had the opportunity to survey students in year 7 to 10 and to really understand and explore well how are they deriving benefits from these spaces and I I looked at it in two ways one way was by actually asking the students, well, what do you want from your schoolyards? And are your spaces delivering what you want? So, And the students told me they wanted places that allowed them to be adventurous, that gave them a sense of belonging, that was liberating and welcoming. And then I asked them a, another set of questions in this survey, which was more about well-being. And, and it was asking questions such as, are there interesting places in the schoolyard? How does it make you feel? Are those surroundings making you feel like you've got separation from some of your classroom stresses? and it was really interesting to see what the results revealed. That in year seven, a lot of these students, both boys and girls, were around the same place. They were really excited to be in these spaces, and they were pretty positive about them. They actually, if you could give them on a, on a, a typical scale, they'd give them a, a solid B grade, I'd say. But then as they progressed, say, to year 10, there was starting to be a real sense of dissatisfaction within these spaces. And there was quite a contrast in how boys and girls were rating this dissatisfaction. Boys seemed to move from giving the schoolyards a B grade to more of a C grade, but the girls were quite different. They plummeted pretty fast and they didn't recover in their rates of approval of these schoolyard spaces. They went more from a B grade, more to a D or an F by the time they got into year 10. Well, I'm interested in that
1: gender difference, but the age difference is interesting too. Is it that people started out wanting to play and the, and the outdoor spaces were good for play and then they had less interest in play or just that the ways they wanted to play weren't being served by those spaces as they aged?
2: I think that's, it's a bit of both. I think when the students initially make that jump from year six to year seven, it's pretty exciting. They move from these playground space, uh, program spaces to these big open fields. It can be, feel quite liberating, like they have more freedom. The scale of it is just bigger. But then after a while, it can also be quite startling. I hear, I remember hearing from a lot of parents that I talked to that year seven students, they fumble around a bit. They don't know how to engage with these spaces because there isn't a lot of programming and encouragement. Of, of informal and imaginative play. And I think that as they progress into year 10 and into 12, I think that there's limits in terms of the variety of type of play spaces that they have. They, as you mentioned earlier, you've got sporting fields, you've got concrete courtyards, And if you're lucky, you'll have some benches and and seating areas, but it's pretty sparse. And I think it limits um, not having a very diverse and and a lot of variety available. It can limit what they feel they can do.
1: And you mentioned the, the stark difference in satisfaction between boys and girls. What was behind that?
2: I think there's a lot of factors at play here. I think one is that, um, given that you have low variety, you, uh, as we say, in terms of the hard courts and the ovals, um, there's not a, there can be, an uncertainty and how to engage with those spaces, especially at a time when students are experiencing adolescence, right? So they're starting to, their bodies are changing, they're, they're maybe not as confident in their physical skills. And so it can kind of cement traditional stereotypes in terms of the boys as they grow larger and they're more physically active to engage in, in more traditional sport. And I talked to some female students and they find that they'd like to engage, but they can find it quite confining and a bit intimidating. And on top of that can be uniforms, which actually play a really big role, especially for female students, because suddenly they also jump from wearing active wear in primary years to suddenly skirts and dresses. And that can be really confining in terms of the types of activities that they feel comfortable engaging in.
1: Yes, depending on the school. We're speaking with Gwyneth Lee, who's been researching for her PhD the ways that playgrounds are designed and how well they're serving the needs and interests of high school students. I mean, Gwyneth, would redesigning the playground help with that kind of of overarching uh, gendered difference? Would, Would girls suddenly feel like they wanted to play more sport and feel less, I don't know, observed and judged and monitored just if the playground was a different shape?
2: Oh, listen, I think it would make a tremendous difference. And I think giving students the agency to have a voice in expressing what they want, because they've got so many ideas. And they are really the experts of schoolyard spaces, because they know them so well. There was one study I looked at which had principals and students identify risks within play yards, and and the principals identified maybe 10 to 20 students had twice as many. They, they know these spaces well. And the students, what they've shared with me, especially the females, is that they want something like slow speed socializing, right? They want to move, but maybe they don't want to play soccer. They want to be able to be social and engage with their friends. So it's places like having opportunities for gymnastics, being able to dance and play music. Um, they talk about incorporating traditional structures like ovals, but also fitness equipment where they can actually work on their own fitness as well is still engaging in conversations. So I think the schoolyard, it's a very social space. It's a space that people want to have a sense of belonging. And I think we need to recognize that. And as a result, create a variety of spaces as, as we have teenagers kind of in this tadpole state of transitioning from youth into becoming an adult. I think the more variety that we can provide them, um, the better off they can be.
1: We'll talk in a moment about some of the lovely ideas that the students had that you asked them. But uh, I want to read you some of the texts that are popping in because this is something that obviously touches a nerve with a lot of our listeners. Gwyneth, kids need access to open space and to moving in open space, says Kim, and she's used capital letters very clearly to illustrate the passion that she has on this topic. Given its real overall benefits, says Dean in Mont Albert in Victoria, more immersive nature in schoolyards is an absolute necessity for kids' physical and mental health into the future. Concrete, tar and barriers are not the answer. One of the main issues with high school play says another text, is the lack of shade for kids. Unbelievable when we have such a high rate of melanoma. Biggest problem is with newer builds. They're like concrete jungles. I feel sorry for the kids. Put up some shade cloths before the trees grow up. So a lot of, you know, different ideas. Young people have particular favourite spots, don't they, Gwyneth Lee? There there are aspects of design that they favour. Tell us what's behind that.
2: Oh, absolutely. A part of it is that just as we enjoy going to cafes and having a chance to people watch, so do students, right? So they want these areas where they can feel safe, where they can retreat and hang with a, a cohort of their friends. But at the same time, they want to be able to observe and to see what's going on and to feel like they're part of that greater community. And I think that... that. We need to keep that in mind as we design these spaces. I think right now you'll find a lot of students, you know, they'll sit on the sidelines in the grassy ovals, but it's not a very comfortable place to be. I think students and some of the ideas they've shared with me is that they want a sense of prospect, a sense of horizon where they can look across the schoolyard and they can have opportunities or have hangout spots where they can hang out with their friends and then watch what's going out on the playing field, but have a chance to then duck out and join the game when they feel comfortable as well as duck back into the hangout zones where they can hang out and just be at ease with their friends again. So it's really, it's giving them choice and helping them feel safe and helping these spaces feel accessible to them.
1: And on that issue of choice and safety, the text reads, is it a gender difference or just a difference in how they like to take a break? I'm male, says this person. And when I was at school, I hated sport. I either wanted to play music or talk to friends. And I know there's been work done too on, on you know yes, that nuance that some people, male or female want to play computer games in a quiet spot and some people want to play sport and it's not necessarily gender segregated. Gwyneth, you ran a competition that came up with some really innovative solutions for playground design. What were some of the changes that students suggested?
2: Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, on, on the one hand, as a lot of students were suggesting oversized um, play areas. So there was still that desire to get that sense of awe and that sense of adventure. Some suggested Versailles-styled mazes. Others suggested castle playgrounds where you had a moat that was 30 meters wide, which you had to cross on a canoe. So Maybe there's a that real desire. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. Everything that would challenge and encourage you to take risks. But there were also a heap of ideas talking about welcoming spaces, spaces that were comfortable, where you could lounge around and just feel relaxed and get away from issues during the day. And and it was It's surprising and impressive to me that the desire to extend that welcome across year levels and the the thought of having students from year seven through to year 12 could feel comfortable and safe within those spaces. And issues of color and beauty, that really makes a difference in terms of how a student feels valued within their spaces. So they're talking about blue for relaxation or bright colors that remind some of the playgrounds from primary years, some were incorporating slides, as you mentioned earlier, and nest swings and it wouldn't just be one slide it would be many said you could make it a game and make it a competition
1: Wow, we're speaking with Gwyneth Lee, who's a landscape architect and PhD candidate in public health at the University of Canberra, looking at how playgrounds could be different and better and and, and make students happier because they're not that satisfied with them, particularly as they move through the secondary school year levels. Let's check in on what's happening in design at the moment. Daniel Smith is chair of Learning Environments Australasia, which is the peak body for school design in Australia and New Zealand. Daniel, welcome. How focused are designers on playgrounds? for high school students in particular?
3: Playgrounds are actually starting to become a lot more of a focus in schools now more than ever. And uh, for us, I guess, we would articulate a lot of that to, I guess, when we're looking at Australia specifically and the Eastern Seaboard, um, the land costs are going up so we actually need to be a lot more inventive with play spaces and social spaces than what we, we had before so in other words some of those spaces are becoming a little bit more constrained for fiscal reasons which basically means that we need to i guess up the investment a, a bit with those spaces so in in, in short hillary I, I would say that um, the design is becoming a lot more um, of a focus with most schools.
1: Well, and I guess, you know, as we mentioned before, a lot of schools have inherited their spaces and it costs a lot and takes a lot of space sometimes to change them. Uh, Daniel, what are some of the ways those challenges can be overcome if schools want to make a difference for their students?
3: But I think a lot of that comes down to, I guess, with the conversation with, with Gwyneth, I, I really do think is on point. Um, we need to think about a, a wider array of diversity of um, for our learners, our students, um, not just in terms of gender needs, but neurodiverse learners, um, various personality types, introvert, extrovert. I think with the the person that sent through that text saying um, he didn't like sport as a kid, but he really was interested in performance. And and, and often we've just ignored some of those other ways of becoming active. Um, And look, the the research will demonstrate that if we get kids active through the course of the day, get blood flow um, moving through the bodies, we're oxygenating the body, um, the performance of kids in learning spaces will actually increase in that regard. So, there's a lot more benefit than just play and and social aspects. Um, we will have a tangible link to increasing learning. Now, we can do that in a multitude of different ways. Um, and a lot of the things that um, Gwyneth is talking about in terms of that that choice, um, it is very helpful. I like to sort of think about um, a sort of a, a, a simple concept which sort of done through some of the the Frank Lloyd Wright designs, which is spaces within spaces. Um, We come into a larger open space, but we might sit in a particular setting. And that makes me feel a little bit more, um, I guess, cocooned, but connected at the same time, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, the conversation Um, pit idea.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's like those sorts of things. And then if you start to think about the settings of how do we seat people together, um, a lot of play spaces have seating areas that are like a bus stop. I mean, when you think about it, when was the last time that you gathered with a group of friends in a linear manner? Like, you just don't. Um, You sit together and you make eye contact with each other and you have a lively conversation. And we've got to think about our play spaces and social spaces in schools like that.
1: Yes, indeed. This is why a sushi train can be an issue because you're all ranked (laughs) around the edges. Wow, this is making my brain spark. I'm going to read you a text from Arthur in Sydney. With regard to redesigning school playgrounds, a key aspect is the ability for teachers to be able to observe all the students in case anything dangerous or harmful happens. These redesigns must allow all of these. Daniel, is there ever a tension between what students want and the school's need for surveillance?
3: There can be, but it doesn't need to be if we're really active in our design environment. So if we think about, as we walk into a larger open space, if I'm in a standing position, I can see around the entire area. And we do have to be really cognizant of supervision because it will have some impacts on Teacher wellness, uh, for instance, because we don't want more teachers on a um, on break time supervision than what we actually need. So what we can do, for instance, in some of those more niched areas, as people sit down in that, they might feel a bit disconnected, but they're still observable. Um, so it is a bit of an art form in terms of dancing around that design to enable those two, I guess, um seemingly, I guess, um, divergent requirements to, to, to take place, but you can do them.
1: Jock's texted in too, for every interesting playground idea, there's a parent with a lawyer, trees have been cut down, soft fall is everywhere with a surface temp of 60 plus in summer, and few public schools could ever afford the innovations. Artificial turf, likewise. It makes me so cranky, says Jock. I can hear it, Jock. Thanks for your text. Tell us then, Daniel, about some of the more innovative ideas that are happening in playground design, particularly Particularly for older students I understand there's some really interesting ideas around kind of sensory experiences
3: that's right and there's the sensory experiences are actually great because it also helps work with our neurodiverse learners at the same time so with that um, we can actually layer in a whole range of different opportunities that can also um, one be social but two give us some learning opportunities so um, if we start with uh, some concepts, for instance, like um, introducing um, sort of like almost like biology, I guess, into the playground. So we start to learn a little bit about plants and we can also start to get our hands dirty and, and get back to some of those, uh, I guess, more primal urges. Um, further to that, um, we can actually start to then twist that a little bit more. So we can start to become curious around the I guess, the, the land in which we live. So some of that could be, for instance, using um, play and social spaces uh, for our, our young people to start to learn how do we connect with country? How do we understand that? And, and further to that, we can actually expand that even more again and start to introduce um, sustainable concepts. Now, a lot of the, the conversation that we've had um, around, I guess, the, the difficulty with either a large oval or um, the hard surface, Um, And if we we think about the landscape, it is biophilic in its nature. And biophilic design really comes down to um, uh, I guess that sense of naturalness and unfortunately with a lot of play spaces we've actually removed some of that naturalness for a multitude of different reasons So well, Daniel, as you're keeping... talking,
1: I'm seeing a, a space for involving Indigenous communities in playground design too and having some cross-fertilisation of learning there I wish we had more time to talk about this but it's been a fascinating glimpse into some of the opportunities that are emerging to have better outdoor spaces for our kids. Daniel, Gwyneth, thanks so much both of you for your time today Thank you. You're welcome, thank you Daniel Smith is Chair of Learning Environments Australasia, the peak body for school design in Australia and New Zealand. Gwyneth Lee's been researching playground design as a landscape architect and a PhD candidate in public health at the University of Canberra. A great... A Chance to take responsibility, growing food and flowers and science trials, says one text. Connect with nature. That's the overwhelming theme of our text today. Up next, we've had to deal with quite a few big natural disasters in recent years. Has that changed how well prepared we are for those still to come? A nationwide risk assessment up next.
3: Geraldine. Julian. You know, your conversations are always so interesting and insightful. I would love to catch up. Could we maybe grab breakfast on Saturday morning? Oh, I can't,
1: sorry. Look, on Saturday mornings, I host Saturday Extra on RN from 7.30. I could do Sunday morning, though.
3: I'd love to, but I've actually got Sunday Extra from 7. Oh, well. Maybe we could have a chat another time?
1: Well, the Saturday Extra podcast's available 24-7 on the ABC Listen app, Julian.
2: Oh, all right. I'll just do that then.
1: Natural disasters have affected people in rural and regional areas the worst so far, but that impact's going to widen as time goes on with more frequent and worse disasters coming. We're well past the stage of mitigation when it comes to climate change and natural hazards and well into the era of adaptation. Whether that adaptation's happening when and where it's needed is another question. Andrew Gissing is at the Coalface here. He's the CEO of Natural Hazards Research Australia. Andrew, it's been predicted for about 20 years that we'd have more and worse natural disasters, and we are. Are we getting better at preparing?
0: Uh, yes, uh, Hilary, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, when we look at the natural uh, hazards that we've had over the last decade, we can certainly see how we are getting better at preparing. I'll give you a great example, the uh, emergency alert uh, warning system, which is now used across the country, sends text messages to people's mobile phones and uh, telephones. You know, that that came in after the Black uh, Saturday bushfires in 2009, and now that's uh, being used. Social media for emergency warnings as well. Um, better technologies, better training, um, certainly, but uh, this, is, this problem of natural hazards in our country is a real wicked one, uh, and we, we, we really do need to be thinking about the future, about you know, what are the future changes that we need to be making now to be making sure that we are better prepared. Uh, and have got better systems in the future as well.
1: Yes, and it's such a complicated landscape, isn't it? Because you've got the community level preparations, you've got all levels of government and, and uh, you know, disaster agencies. How well is everyone working together on this?
0: Well, it is a problem that requires the whole of society to be to be working on it. We uh, did some uh, research as Naturalised Research Australia over the last few years and uh, that work was into catastrophic disasters and as a key conclusion of that uh, particular uh, project uh, was that uh, as a society we need a whole of uh, community approach and a nationwide approach because when we face the disasters like we have of the last three years we've had, we've had bushfires we've had cyclones we've had heat waves um, we need everybody that's business that's uh, community organizations that's our typical emergency services but most importantly it involves the community and uh, community-led action and we saw that during the uh, the floods of uh, of Lismore this year uh, sorry last year as well where the community uh, rallied around to provide support to each other and in these really large disasters it's it's almost impossible for any government or any organisation to have enough capacity uh, to be able to bring to bear for such an event. And it really requires that coordinated and collective approach of organisations and communities coming together.
1: Let's look at some particular instances where we might need to think carefully about our preparations. Perhaps businesses operating in risky areas, especially industries that can't be moved out of those areas like agriculture and mining and forestry. How might they adapt or minimise risk?
0: Yeah, so uh, all, all businesses, uh, regardless of uh, where they are, should obviously have a business continuity plan, which looks at how they can be resilient to various uh, disruptions. But your question also goes to about how we use our, our land um, and where we, we choose to settle. Um, things like agriculture are actually probably a, a good use for flood-prone land, though there's uh, still damage to crops and potential risks to uh, to livestock. Um we still see there that uh, we we can be reducing risk to human life and not having huge amounts of property damage as a result of, uh, say, using that same land for residential uh, development. And, you know, that was certainly reflected in the, the outcomes of the New South Wales Flood Inquiry uh, last year, which made similar uh, recommendations. So uh, we really do need to be thinking about how we use our land and through land use uh, planning, making sure that our policies establish a a risk-based approach to land use planning where we're not just thinking about the probability of different events. We often talk about the one in 100 year flood, for example, um, which is a probability-based approach to to land use planning. But we need to be talking about a a risk-based approach, which not only considers the probability of an event occurring but also the, uh, the consequences which might occur as well.
1: We're speaking with Andrew Gissing. He's CEO of the Natural Hazards Research Australia. Andrew, you argue I understand that we need to work better with the natural landscape to, to work with it for our mutual benefit. What form might that take when we're looking at natural disasters?
0: Uh, true. So uh, we all know that our environment has changed so much uh, over the last centuries here in Australia and the the degradation of our environment uh, as well. That contributes to natural hazard uh, risks. So, you know, for example, when we look at uh, flooding, uh, using more water-sensitive urban design in our cities can assist to reduce uh, urban flood risks. So, uh, you know, in, in years gone by, we've had a, a mantle uh, of trying to get rid of the, the water as quickly as possible. And what that sees is the uh, that we can have these quite peaky uh, floods where we escalate the the height of the of the events. Um, but what we actually now uh, see as being uh, a better practice is actually slowing down the, the the speed of the water, such that it can pass uh, through our landscape and reduce the uh, the extremes of the events uh, at the same time. So things like uh, catchment reforestation is also. Ah, uh, very uh, good, uh, but we're not looking here at uh, complete avoidance of, of flood risk, but certainly contributes. And when we're also uh, looking at our natural environment, uh, improving the natural environment has significant co-benefits. You know, if we're looking at revegetating catchments, for example, we've got uh, benefits in terms of biodiversity, uh, reducing uh, urban heat uh, impacts, uh, increasing our water quality and air quality as well. So all those other uh, co-benefits are really
1: important. What are some sensitive ways to increase the preparedness of people who don't want to move?
0: We saw uh, during the floods of, of last year in particular, um, you know, a lot of people didn't uh, leave their homes. Um, and this can create a lot of issues for emergency services. Emergency services don't issue evacuation warnings lightly. You know, when evacuations are, are, are issued, uh, you know, there's a true risk to, to human life there. Uh, and, yes, yeah, certainly through research, we, we need to improve the ways that we can engage uh, with communities. But also, this is... This is Human behaviour that we know has existed for uh, for decades, and we're not necessarily going to potentially change it by uh, by different messaging from emergency services. It's also about well, if we know that this behaviour is occurring uh, throughout our communities, how can we make those people uh, safer? How can we uh, encourage them to be better prepared? For example, if they are going to choose to, to stay in place, but also to better understand the risks of staying in place and not evacuating, and those risks are. Uh, um, meaning, particularly if you're isolated in a in a flood-prone area, and your house uh, subsequently becomes uh, inundated, and you need to be uh, need to be rescued. So it's about better understanding of that behaviour, better understanding and integration into uh, emergency plans. But most of all. Uh, It's really encouraging people to uh, follow emergency service advice.
1: Well, and and so much of that is about trust, isn't it, Andrew Gissing? I mean, and I I understand that generally in your local area, the trust between you and your local emergency services is pretty good. But do you ever find, uh, I guess... A lack of receptiveness uh, to people in this country to strategies for hazard reduction that are based on science. Do we have a a problem more broadly with people's attitude to science or scientists that sometimes gets in the way?
0: I, I think that's a, that's a really good question. My observation would be uh, COVID is, is a good example of of this, where we were uh, to a large uh, part, you know, led by you know scientists in terms of the evidence. We are seeing that in terms of the natural hazard space with the researchers, you know, even through uh, my organisation, Natural Hazard Research Australia, uh, really. Being able to get uh, change uh, made in, in terms of the way that uh, we, we're working, making decisions across the natural hazards uh, space, you know, improving warning systems, improving people's understanding about extreme uh, behaviours in, in natural hazards, and uh, having that knowledge then embedded in the way that our emergency services work.
1: Do we rely too much on volunteers, Andrew? Do we have the right workforce po- in place to deal with what's coming?
0: Yeah well uh, this was a a point made in the ADF strategic review uh, just recently uh, where you know with ADF resources were seen to be a last resort in terms of disaster management uh, into the future and obviously that puts uh, more strain back in terms of existing state and territory emergency management arrangements which rely heavily on volunteers as you you mentioned and we do know that uh, Some parts of our volunteering are in decline, uh, but we also know that volunteers want to uh, volunteer their time in different ways. uh, And we've got new generations of people coming into volunteering that have different expectations for their volunteering. So uh, the key thing there is that volunteering in the future needs to be more flexible to enable people to volunteer in ways that they think can best contribute to the cause. But our traditional ways of doing emergency management certainly need to uh, be the foundation stone of our, our systems. But we also need to appreciate, as I said at the start, this whole of community effort to disaster management in our country, and that means not just relying on uh, goodwill of, of volunteers, but also improved engagement with community organisations. We know that there's a high appetite for community organisations to be more involved in disaster management. We're seeing the excellent work that they are able to do, particularly in the relief and recovery uh, efforts after disasters. So there's one source of capability that could be better tapped. The other one is business. So. Again, we know that business also has an appetite to be uh, more involved, principally to you know, assist their customers and the local communities in which they, uh, they operate uh, in. Uh, but there's also a broader benefits uh, for businesses in terms of uh, achieving sustainability, aims, etc., through involvement in, uh, in disasters as well. And again, offering an untapped capability that uh, might be able to fill a hole through uh, where, where we are seeing strained uh, volunteer capacity and also not being able to rely as much on the ADF into the future
1: as well. We are getting such an interesting overview of our capabilities when it comes to disaster management and risk assessment with Andrew Gissing, CEO of Natural Hazards Research Australia here on Life Matters. Andrew I mean you mentioned that communities are really good at at pitching in and helping after a disaster but so many of them would prefer not to have to do that and to be prepared better beforehand. When it comes to working out where it is safe to build, how good are we at predicting that level of risk and listening to that risk assessment?
0: Yeah, so uh, we've got some really good science around the way that we do risk assessments, particularly at the local level for various uh, natural hazards. We've got a really good understanding, uh, for example, where it's likely to flood, uh, where bushfire-prone areas, uh, where... You know, we need to uh, have good wind standards because of tropical cyclone uh, risk uh, in our country. Uh, probably one area that uh, does need further attention uh, in the urban landscape is heat. Uh, we know extreme heat is our largest uh, killer in terms of natural hazards. In fact, it's uh, the sum total of all other uh, natural hazards combined in terms of its overall mortality. So particularly as we see our climate warm and our communities experience more extreme heat into the future, we will need to account more and more for extreme heat in our urban design and land use planning into the future uh, there as well. But our existing information about uh, floods, for example, is is, is fairly good. Uh, the key challenge into the future, though, is going to be how we integrate the uh, considerations of climate change into our risk assessments in a consistent uh, manner and how that is applied to future land use planning because we know that uh, floods in, in areas will worsen uh, and uh, particularly in coastal areas where we're going to see the uh, interactions of, uh, of sea level rise and also potentially more heavy rain uh, events as well. So, uh, yeah, we, we will need to make sure that uh, land use planning decisions are taking into account that future climate change.
1: So there's a few priorities for, for the next few years. Andrew, how would you like to see that progress? What What would be the key thing that would help people work together, as you say, on minimising those risks? Well, I think
0: there's just so many uh, things to just sort of nail it down into uh, to one specific uh, uh, solution. And that's you know, the, the, the key challenge with disaster management is the complexity of the disasters. But, you know, we need to uh, address the disaster risk uh, right up front. So that's about the creation of risk. So, again, more focus about risk-based uh, land use planning and urban design is absolutely key Uh, to ensuring that uh, we've got uh, safer, more resilient and sustainable communities uh, uh, going forward. The other point is, you know, we also know where existing uh, risks are as well. And, you know, they're also facing challenges around their insurability uh, into the future. So investments in mitigation around those communities, risk-based prioritisation of that mitigation as well, is vital to make sure that those communities can also uh, maintain their prosperity uh, into the future. Because we're going to see More events, uh, more frequent events, and communities that are exposed to these frequent events will, uh, in essence, uh, be living in almost a constant state of of recovery. We're we're seeing that in some parts of Australia uh, already where uh, uh, communities have been hit by back-to-back disasters over the last three years, and that's absolutely terrible. Um, And we do need to focus our efforts and attention on how we uh, mitigate those risks, and that's about understanding those risks in those local contexts and wrapping around integrated measures to ensure that uh, we can effectively reduce that risk.
1: Yep, working together across all sectors and all levels, key to that. Andrew Gissing, thanks so much for your time on Life Matters today. Thank you, Hilary. Andrew Gissing, CEO of Natural Hazards Research Australia, a government-funded collaborative research organisation. You're listening to ABC RN. Every parent worries sometimes if their children will be okay when they're gone. Have they got all the skills they need? Do they have a support network for the hard times? Will they be happy? Will they be financially secure? For parents of kids with special needs, that's dialed up to 11. But meanwhile, you still have to head to work, don't you? Clean the house, care for the kids, no matter how big they are. Janet Sharrock and Brent Barnes know this very well. They've got a neurodiverse family, five kids between them, and all of them are part of a new documentary. It's called Because We Have Each Other. Brent, Janet, thanks so much for coming on the radio.
4: G'day, how are you
1: going? Hello. Great to have you here. And Sari Braithwaite directed this film. Sari, welcome to you too.
5: Thank you so much for
1: having me. Janet and Brent, can I just say first up, I really love your doormat. Welcome to the dark side. There's a bit of a Star Wars vibe around the house. (laughs) This is going to be a safe, you know, Jedi-friendly space here. It's a really big decision to let someone into your lives, to follow you around for years. And and at one point, you know, film you chatting and arguing in bed. What was it like having Sari around like that?
4: Um, It was interesting. It was... We enjoyed having her around her company anyway. We like, yeah, you know, we'd get on with Sari, and that flowed through in the movie. Um, it was, you, you learn just, to, it was just Sari and the cameraman, and you just accepted they were there, and it was just a bit of fun.
6: Filming took place over five years, even though you see just a section of it in the film, because we have each other. And by after five years, Sari's now a member of the family. Uh, We love her husband, her daughter's like a grandchild for me. So it's been really good for us as a family to connect with someone else with just different ideas on life.
1: And Janet, was there a process that you went through before you went, okay, we trust her enough to let her in and just let her see everything, which is, you know, be a big thing in my house. I can tell you letting someone come and see the laundry, for example. Uh, look I've never had the house so clean and sometimes
6: she'd just turn up and I wouldn't have any sort of preparation time but I'd be screaming at the kids make sure you make your beds before you go out (laughs) clear the table keep the dishes in the sink nice and clean and Sari would come in a lot and say oh I want it messier can I and she'd put things out to make it look messy and I'm like what are you doing what are you doing but it's good anyone who wants to keep the house tidy just say so yes you can make a film about the family over five years and you'll be amazed at how anal you'll get
1: yep <laughs> sorry how did you meet janet and brennan and think yep this this is the family i want to make a film about
5: um i just want to say that i love that story janet and i always think about how clean your house is compared to you know my house which is always trashed at the moment so I, <laughs> her house is always beautiful she runs a tight ship um, not
6: anymore, uh, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it, sucks the always, it sucks on the floor now. There's socks on the floor.
5: So impressive. Um, I feel like the start of a film is, is almost like a magical thing that turns up in your life. I had uh, just finished making a documentary about ABC broadcaster Anne Deverson um, oh. about the end of her life and how she was dealing with the loss of her memory with Alzheimer's. Um, and it was Actually, one day after finishing that film, I got on a plane and I read an article about Janet's daughter, Becky, and her extraordinary memory. And the article was also about the entire family. And when I read the article, I was in a stage where I was th- thought I absolutely was in no place to make another film, but something compelled me to rip the story out of the paper and keep it as a bookmark. And then two months later, I was still thinking about this article and this family, and I um, I contacted them just out of the blue and asked if they would meet with me. Years later, Janet would tell everyone that she thought it was a scam. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. I thought, who would want to make a movie about us? This oh, is no. definitely someone
6: who's after money. I'm being catfished.
5: <laughs> but it yeah. speaks to something so beautiful about Buddha and Janet's open hearts that they were like, oh, this could be a scam, but let's just see what happens. Don't give her any private information, Um, but they still met me, and on meeting them, I just had the immediate sense that this was an extraordinary group of people, and I had no idea how to make a film about them, but it was worth giving it a go, and they
1: let us do it. It's really interesting watching the film and just seeing the layers like an onion peel back, reveal a bit more, reveal a bit more, reveal a bit more. Because as you say, you know, it's a big family and everyone's got something going on. Janet, Sari mentioned uh, Becky's amazing memory. Tell us about the condition that she has and how it affects her life.
6: Well, I've discovered she would have been 21. I watched a show on television, a 60 minute show, and it was an American sort of segment and they were talking about these people who could remember every day of their life. I think there was about five or six at the time identified and I'd often wondered why Becky's memory was so good that she could you know don't know dates from years before and I sort of showed Becky the segment and I said Beck I think you have this memory And um, before I'd put it down to her OCD and her autism, but no one else with this memory actually has those conditions. I think a couple have OCD, but no one else has autism. But we contacted the university and she did two years of testing, extensive testing. And she paid for me. Bless her. We went over to America. They scanned her brain and so on. And she is the only Australian with HSAM, highly superior autobiographical memory. It's not um, a photographic memory. It's just she can't forget any of her personal experiences. So she remembers what she's seen, what she's heard, what she's tasted, what she's smelled. And for Rebecca, a lot of the people with this type of memory, they now think there's about 80 worldwide who have it, um, mostly in America. Um, They do think there's perhaps a a small selection of other people who will come forward, but they're not anticipating. That's how rare this memory is. And um, she's just amazing. Her memory um, seems to start from the day she was born. In fact, she's being studied by the University of Queensland as well as the University of California, Irvine, who identified the memory condition initially. And Rebecca can take her memory right back to. She says they think it might be in the womb. Wow! So a lot, a lot of the people who have the condition, it seems to have kicked in about twelve. But they now twelve years of age. But they now have. Um, I think there was a set of twins that is in the study in the universe, in the American study, and one has the condition and the other one doesn't. Well, and there were I mean... children younger than twelve. So yep,
1: it's a very strange. Rare memory, yeah, and, and as Becky says in the film, that can be good and bad because you remember the bad stuff as well as the good stuff. So, Brent, I mean, we've heard there's autism, there's OCD, there are learning difficulties. It's a it's a really diverse and interesting set of needs in the family. How much energy would you say that takes out of you day to day?
4: Hundred percent,
1: hundred and one, maybe.
4: Yeah, there's nothing left. At the end of the day, we go to bed, buggered. Sorry.
1: <laughs> oh, <speak>. look, <laughs> it seems pretty accurate to me. And, you know, yeah, you're
4: like, a as well. A we, we go to bed, we're tired. <laughs> we don't get time to ourselves. It, mm-hmm. It's um, been switched on. Like, Becky goes to bed about half an hour before we do. About, you know, and then that's our, our sort of time by ourselves. It is full on. There's always something happening somewhere. You know, the kids with special needs and... It's full on.
6: We just have to show up. Yeah. And you don't have a choice. You, you don't have parent. a choice. You've
4: you got nothing, you know. Some people say they couldn't, couldn't do it. Well, what choice have you got?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And at one point, one yeah. of you, I think, says, we're going to be parenting from beyond the grave. You know, we've got to think about yeah. that time too. How, how do you think about that time when you won't be around anymore?
4: You don't. You don't want to look that far ahead. You don't look too far ahead. Don't look too far behind. Deal with the problem that we've got now. Maybe look at next week's problem, but don't try and plan next year's because it's going to be there and it'll be different. You'll I'm you, always you
6: know. planning, so he's fine. He can look for the he can look for the now, but behind the scenes, the wheels and cogs are moving. That's well, a good and set of I have skills, to say, I know a a, yep. a lot of people have had negative experiences with the NDIS, but it has been a breather for us because we never received any funding before the NDIS came through, and they've enabled us then to increase the therapies. We can have support people who now can take them out. So before that was me. I had to do it 100% and because Brent had to be at the workshop and then we'd shut our workshop down to be able to take them if I needed support.
1: Well, and you at know, one point so. you're both kind of, you know, laughing about the idea of retirement. What even is this thing that people talk about? Because <laughs> the film makes it clear you're not living in a palatial mansion. There's not, like you said, huge amounts of help around the home. How does that affect your ability to, to cope with everything that's going on day to day?
4: Um You just deal with it. You got no choice. It's hard. We don't have money. We're not rich. We're not. We earn. You know, Janet can't work full time because she's a carer. She can't. You know, so we're trying to live off my wage. I've got dyslexia. Wage. (laughs) Yeah, wage. We're sorry. We've
6: got our own business, so there is no
4: money. Now I'm I'm dyslexia, so that makes it a lot harder to get a job. For a normal i've really at my age working for myself is the only option i've got and i'm lucky i'm i'm a very good spray painter and i'm well known and i'm good at it i, I must admit it but that's the only thing i can do so we just we deal with it when <laughs>
1: Brent, I feel like no. it was a really good decision then to put the, the name of the outfit on the T-shirts in the, in the doco <laughs> when his <laughs> son Brendan's walking around. It's like, yep, now I'm a bit more well-known. That's good. Sorry. Yeah, I
4: got dressed up for the doco, as you can see.
1: <laughs> good. <laughs> Sorry, you directed this film because we have each other, and it's a complex family dynamic, lots of really personal stuff going on, private stuff. How did you manage the ethical decisions that would have come up during the filming?
5: I think the thing with documentary is that it is always um, an ethical minefield um, and I think uh, not enough filmmakers um, reflect and think about how to move forward when you are a person with a tremendous amount of power in holding a camera in front of people's lives and telling their story and from the very beginning um, I was so aware of that and I think in many big ways and very small ways, we tried to have a process which um, tried to balance the power. And I think ultimately it came down to um, the kind of love that we all have for each other and the cl- collaboration in making it. Um, and and trust. The tremendous trust. trust. Janet, yeah. that's what I was going to say. The trust. Yeah. <laughs> and, trust. Um, yeah. and, you know, as a filmmaker it is the most um, humbling and extraordinary gift for people like Buddha and Janet and their family to have trust in me to tell their story. Um, and it's a responsibility that you know I find kind of almost sacred that they would um, let me in and invite me to tell their story. And when someone trusts you that much to tell you the hardest things that have ever happened to them, to offer a key to their front door so you could come in, um, you don't mess with that like you honor that with every fiber of your being and um, that was the that was the compass guiding us the whole time is that our trust and our love for each other
1: it is really sensitively handled Janet I mean you and the family have had some pretty bad things happen to you over the years do you yeah. and Brent ever think about how fair or not fair life has been to you or how lucky or not lucky it's been
6: well, you can't ever look at, you know, I'm I'm naturally a positive person because otherwise i just spend my life locked in a room, banging my head against a wall, and what would be the point of that, you know? And that can be very negative. We've just come back from a holiday, and I say that she's sadness, you know, all the time and that you can't spend your life being gloomy and you've just got to look one foot in front of the other and at least you're moving forward. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know, it does not, people think they can't move because they're they're scared of failure. I'm not scared of failure. I just don't ever want to think I just didn't try. And I think that's been the motto that has got us through everything. Yeah, we've had some really bad things happening, you know, to us. And we're currently going through very challenging times. But just sitting and worrying about them is not going to change it. Just trying to look and focus your mind onto something that is more positive. Looking, and sometimes it's really hard to see that silver lining. It really is, but it's so much better in my mind to focus on looking for a positive thing than just dwelling on the negative, which will never, it'll never move you forward.
1: And Janet, I mean that that hope is what keeps me going with my little boy too, who's uh, who's a bit different. Yeah Are you uh, a bit famous in your neighbourhood now? Have you had feedback from people who've seen it?
6: Oh, we've had recognition sort of coming out of the ladies, and someone has said, "Oh, we know you. <laughs> yeah. oh, good. We've seen you. Oh, they hear my voice and they know my accent. I've been I've been in Australia for fifty years. I'm never going to lose it. I came when I was nine, so I'm never going to lose my accent. But I'm Australian through and through. Love it here, and it's just good. But they'll somehow they know my voice if they hear me talking, and I talk a lot, so." <laughs>
1: Well, sorry, how have audiences received the film so far? Who, who does it resonate with, do you think?
5: Uh, it's really interesting, I think, because we've got seven people in the film who are all dealing with um, different phases of their lives and different struggles. One of the things that I've really loved is um, audiences coming out and resonating with particular um, people and particular stories. Uh, we just came back from screenings in Canada and it was one of the greatest joys in this whole thing um, of making this film to see all these um, women come after Janet at the end of the screening and circle yep. her to speak to her. It was, I don't know, J- Janet will remember, but it felt like yep. there was like half a dozen surrounding her. and All grey-haired. All grey-haired. <laughs> And um, and so it's beautiful to to find the ways that um, this film connects with different people. We had we had a woman um, come up to us in Canada who had tears in her eyes, and she said, um, "I didn't know I needed to see this film today, but I really did need to see it." And I think that's one of the beautiful things about this film is that um, it really deals with the hardest things of what it is to be alive but also the most extraordinary things Um, and it's it's kind of deeply uplifting for audiences and um, I feel like people come out of it feeling changed by the opportunity to meet this family.
1: I certainly did. Janet Sharrock, Brent Barnes, Sari Braithwaite, thank you so much for telling us a bit about the film here on Life Matters.
6: Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for inviting us. It's It's, been a pleasure.
1: It's my pleasure too. Janet and Brent are in the documentary Because We Have Each Other with their whole family. Sari Braithwaite is the director and it's touring nationally, that film, kicking off on Friday in Canberra. You can search it online for screening information. Here's a little bit of it. It's really lovely.
6: We talk about the universe being infinite and we always think of the universe as being far away. But we have an infinite universe on our own planet every day.
1: And I just find it mind-blowingly wonderful. Because we have each other, it's called. The relationship between mothers and daughters next time on Life Matters, it's often such an intense bond and it can change a lot as we go through life. If we have our own kids or as we age or partnerships or health issues come and go, is your mum someone you'd call in a crisis? Would you confide in your daughter? Author Susan Johnson has thought and written extensively about this mother-daughter dynamic. She'll share what she's learned with Beverly Wang, and they'll hear your thoughts too. I'm Hilary Harper. I'll catch you next time.